Hey friends, it's Melvin. Thanks for tuning into this episode. Here's just a few quick things I wanted to notify you guys about before we get started. First up, very soon, new episodes will be releasing Wednesday mornings rather than Tuesday. So don't panic if you don't see a new episode on Tuesday. Just wait a little longer and you'll see it in your feed. Second, we've introduced a mailbag. Check those show notes and toward the bottom you'll see a mailbag link. You'll then be able to text us any questions you might have about movies, the movie industry, or any movie-slash-Christian-related questions you might have. Then we'll respond in a future episode, so send us your questions now. Up next, Patreon polls, which are available to Patreon supporters at the $3 tier or higher, have been updated. Supporters can now suggest films or shows to be reviewed at the end of each month. The two most liked submissions will become the options for the Patreon poll, so if you want to hear us talk about your favorite movie or show, join our Patreon and start campaigning. And lastly, whether you're a new or long-time listener, please consider writing a review or rating the Cinematic Doctrine podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Apart from financially supporting on Patreon, these are the two most helpful ways to support the show. And that's it. Enjoy the episode. Hi, my name is Melvin, and... Halloween is finally here! Welcome to Cinematic Doctrine, a non-spoiler Christian movie podcast where we take Spooky Month very seriously. Tonight we'll be checking out Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later. This movie was chosen by the lovely patrons who support Cinematic Doctrine with a small monthly donation. For as little as $3, you too can have the opportunity to vote on a movie I review at the end of each month by heading on over to Cinematic Doctrine's Patreon. A link will be available in the show notes. Released in 2002, 28 Days Later resurrected the zombie genre since the days of Romero. It quite literally infected pop culture. Films like Shaun of the Dead, Dead Snow, basically the entirety of the Resident Evil movies, and even novels such as World War Z and Warm Bodies were gaining immense popularity in the wake of 28 Days Later. As for me, I was a huge fan of The Walking Dead, and even remember meeting with friends each Sunday night to catch the latest episode. Everyone was infected with a zombie craze, and we have 28 Days Later to thank for that. Which is funny when you consider it has a grossly low budget of 8 million and had a limited release of about 1,500 theaters in the United States. And it all came down to one thing. Fast zombies. That was the characteristic presented in 28 Days Later that terrified everyone, and it was the jolt of life needed to revitalize the long-dead zombie genre. But enough zombie puns and wordplay. Let's tell you guys all about 28 Days Later. The film opens up with a scene in a laboratory in which a myriad of chimpanzees are caged, tested, and secured from escape. At the same time, a group of animal activists break in with the intent of releasing them from their captivity. But a nearby scientist who finds out about their plans begs them not to release them. They're infected, he tells them, with rage. Ignoring his plea, they release one of the chimpanzees from its cage, and it immediately charges one of the activists. Near instantly, she convulses, bleeds profusely, and attacks her friend without remorse. Twenty-eight days later, we're in a hospital as Jim, played by Killian Murphy, wakes from a coma. As he comes to, it doesn't take long for him to see the sorry state everything's in. Junk is littered everywhere, furniture is overturned, everything is in disarray, and everyone's gone. There's no one in the streets, missing signs are hung everywhere, and soon Jim comes across a newspaper that reads, Evacuation. It isn't long before he soon encounters what looks to be a human but is nothing more than a rage-infected husk of its former self, and there's nothing he can do but run. 
28 Days Later is rated R for strong violence and gore, language, and nudity. The strong violence and gore is portrayed in a chaotic, split-second manner, so it's not quite as visceral as one might expect, but that doesn't make it any less scary or frightening. In fact, if I recall correctly, there's a gruesome dismemberment. Yet, it's still in a quick, blazing pace that you can only see for a moment. Apart from that, the strong violence is a mixture of how things are being hurt and maimed and how it's portrayed. In other words, it's not just people dying, it's that they'll be shrieking and flailing while they die, so it makes it a lot freakier both visually and audibly. The language is fairly consistent, and I'm actually surprised the certificate only says language and not strong language, considering a word that's used a lot during the third act of the film. Not only that, just the fact that the language is so pervasive alone feels like it's an incomplete certificate, but I suppose that's what you get for 2002. And the nudity is so annoying because it's the most unnecessary thing on the planet. There's brief full male nudity in the beginning of the film and brief full male nudity at the end, and like, it's just, it makes no sense. It's not even sexual, it's just dumb. Now before we take a look at 28 Days Later, I wanted to share real quick that if you've come to enjoy Cinematic Doctrine and would like to support the show, be sure to leave a review on your respective podcast app at the end of this episode. You can also head to CinematicDoctrine.com and check out all kinds of cool stuff, as well as get connected with all our social media. Also, Cinematic Doctrine has a Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you can join other patrons and vote on a movie I review once a month. Any amount is appreciated with multiple tiers to choose from, all of which go toward making Cinematic Doctrine the best podcast it can be. I have to admit, I didn't like 28 Days Later the first time I watched it. I mean, I did, but not really as much as I expected to. When I think about the build-up, the hype, the legacy of this film, I suppose I expected something a bit more from it. So when I realized it was an incredibly low-budget, kind of ugly-looking movie, I felt a little cheated. Then when I finally got around to watching its sequel 28 weeks later, I was like, why are people disappointed with this sequel? It's not like the first movie was all that good. But then my lovely patrons voted on 28 Days Later as this month's patron-voted movie, so I figured, what the heck, I guess I have to watch it again, so here goes nothing. And yeah, I, I think I get it now. I mean, if I can speak plainly, I was already living in a world that was used to the fast zombie. I already played countless hours of Left 4 Dead 2, and as mentioned before, I was a big fan of The Walking Dead, at least up until season 4. So the thrill of fast zombies was lost on me since I had already been immersed in that aspect of zombie lore. Also, I was pretty underwhelmed at the time by the visual aspect of the film. In fact, it's ironic to call it a film. 28 Days Later wasn't shot on film, at least not much of it. Most of it was shot on a Canon XL1, which was considered a prosumer camera at the time. It was the sort of thing you would purchase if you wanted to make your own movie but couldn't rent a giant film camera. In fact, that's one of the main reasons they used it. The Canon XL1 was a lot smaller and more convenient for travel. So during certain scenes where they needed to clear out neighborhoods or clear out the streets, Danny Boyle and his crew would occupy an area early at dawn, shoot their scene, and pack up all in about 45 minutes. The reason for this process was the cost, and another was a matter of convenience. By shooting so early in the morning, not many people were out, so there weren't many people to get in the way. But even though that's incredibly practical and really creative, it doesn't mean the film's visual quality is excusable, at least not for me. And I recognize how anal and petty I sound about that, but some shots look smeared like someone rubbed a wet paper towel across damp paint. And because of the convenience of shooting on a Canon XL1, there are a lot of shots that have a weird color too, since the camera doesn't seem to pick up as wide an array of color as other cameras might. I will say that in the end, it's simply a necessary evil when you account for the low budget, minimal time, and the feats this film goes for. 
Like, even though the picture looks terrible, Jim walking through the empty streets of London is still haunting. And I don't want this review to become hot take after hot take. But I don't know if I was totally into the music either the first time I watched this movie, nor my rewatch. At least, not all of it. Some of it seemed well used, others were awkward and almost pulled my attention away from the action. For example, let's take that scene we were just talking about where Jim is walking through the empty streets of London. There's a mounting track that's becoming more and more thematic and epic and chaotic and loud, and while I can see it in a way expressing the emotions that Jim is feeling as he comes to term with what happened in London, especially as the track climaxes when he begins reading a wall plastered with missing person signs, but I just feel like it's not very helpful. It's pretty distracting. Meanwhile, there's a scene later in the movie where our characters are traveling and a really smoothing, almost hymnal track is played. It's honestly used really well in two different scenes. Both scenes, I feel, use it as a means to translate a call for innocence, like a drawback before everything fell into an apocalyptic chaos of running zombies and heightened mortality. Whether it's our characters driving like maniacs or somberly looking at a disaster from a distance, it's almost like a reminder that things weren't always this way. So, like, I, I guess what I mean to say is, this film feels like a constant hit or miss at times. At least, that's how I look at it. And this time around, I ended up liking it a lot more, so maybe it's the sort of film that just grows on you. And I love its odyssey feel. Jim and the gang aren't headed for home, they're just headed somewhere safe, if there is anywhere safe. Because of this, we end up traveling the United Kingdom and its vistas at such a healthy pace. Like, even if I feel the film can be a bit strange and weird at times, which quite honestly might be Danny Boyle's style, there's such a masterful pacing to this film. You spend just enough time in one area and transition comfortably to the next. It's really great. And you know what else is really great? How 28 Days Later is able to get you invested in its characters. This is where Alex Garland's writing comes into play. The dialogue feels so fresh and real. Motivations and characteristics are made easily relatable. It pulls you deeper into the film's runtime with each conversation and event. And with everything I've said, I think the writing is the biggest thing here. I would love to take a look at the script because at the end of the day, the thing with 28 Days Later that gives it its staying power isn't actually the fast zombies, but the writing. It takes a simple premise and expounds on it in creative ways, knows just how little or how much it needs to dig into certain story elements. It's like vignettes, moments in these characters' lives that have a single connective tissue but for the most part are their own little stories. In general, if I can compare this movie to something out of left field, it's like having the perfect temperature for your bathwater. You settle in and it's such a comfy place to be, you have your book, you have your drink, and you're so ready to stay around for a while. Sure, your hands may get pruney, but it's so nice and you really don't care what's going on. But like anyone who's had a good bath, sometimes the steam runs out and the water's a little cold. You might have accidentally gotten water all over your book. Maybe realize your drink is empty. I don't know. So it's not perfect and there are definitely things you'll do better next time to make the experience easier, but it doesn't change the fact that it was still a nice time. So yeah, there you go. 28 Days Later is like the perfect bath. Quote me on that. Something about the zombie genre that has always interested me is the moral dilemma of killing someone who is infected, but they haven't turned yet. Like, picture this. Your friend just got bitten by a zombie, but he's got about 10 minutes before he officially goes wild. Would it be immoral to kill him even when he's already infected and could risk giving the infection to you, especially if he's asking you to do it, or would it be appropriate to wait until he's a genuine threat to you, at risk of him overpowering you in his zombified state? 
Virtually every zombie movie has a sequence like this. A character would rather die as a human than be a risk as a zombie. It's almost like a heroic euthanasia. And I think my initial inclination is that, as a Christian, it would be immoral to kill someone if they haven't turned yet. First, I would imagine you would try to do everything you can to prevent the infection from spreading. Like, if someone was bitten in the arm, you'd chop off their arm as fast as you can to keep the infection from spreading everywhere else. Like, couldn't that help? At the very least, it makes me think you'd want to try that first rather than go, Yeah, you're right, it is a good idea to kill you before you turn. We'll do that. Something about that feels, although technically practical and potentially more efficient, it just doesn't feel right when it sits in my gut. I can't necessarily say I can find a biblical response to this, but for starters, we don't have zombies in real life, at least not yet, so it's hard to give an answer. However, we do have a moral code present in the Bible in this regard. You know, don't murder. It's one of the Ten Commandments, and loving our neighbor as ourselves would incline us to put someone else's well-being above our own. In other words, what I'm saying is there must be a proper biblical response to this fictional conundrum. But most importantly, I think it's unlikely we'll ever be in this situation. At least, I hope neither of us will. Something else I find fascinating about the zombie genre has to do with the sort of cultural regression. Although interest has waned in the genre, there was an immense draw to post-apocalyptic literature and storytelling, and I think a lot of this has to do with an interest in some sort of primal reset button. Like, we're too enamored with modern life, whether it be the immense level of technology we interact with, our tiresome day-to-day -day job, or the overwhelming boredom that comes along with first-world existentialism. People were hungry like zombies for these stories of characters who go urban spelunking for supplies, never stop moving from one place to another, and in a way, get to explore the world in a way we can never experience. What is it that that one saying... Born too late to explore the new world, born too early for space exploration, born just in time to watch an overabundance of cheeky zombie movies. And this sort of... I don't know what you'd call it. I guess you could call it a worldview. This worldview, I feel like, stems from an awareness that we aren't supposed to sit still in one place all the time. It's not good for me to stay at home every day of my life. It's not enough for me to drive the same route at the same time in the same traffic for the same paycheck just so I can do the same thing every day. I think even in the most comfortable of people, we all have a passive understanding of a core tenet of the creation mandate seen in Genesis 1. We are to fill, subdue, and rule the earth. And while that's a call for humanity, individually, there's still a want or tug to fill, subdue, and rule more than my own lawn. Heck, I don't even have a lawn. I live in an apartment. But I can't really make any declaration here. I, I think I'm really just talking out loud, sharing my thoughts that have been jumbling in my head since I first watched a zombie movie or played a zombie game. There's a great paper included at the end of Daniel Strange's book, Plugged In, Connecting Your Faith with What You Watch, Read, and Play, called Zombies, They're Us. It's a paper written by one of his students that digs into this cultural fascination a little more than I do. And it talks more about zombies themselves rather than the apocalyptic effect zombies have. But I recommend checking it out if you're interested in tackling this cultural interest with a biblical lens. The whole book is great on learning how to engage cultural media with a means to evangelize. It's actually somewhat of a baseline I use for this podcast. But if you're mostly interested in what one of his students has to say about zombies from a biblical front, because, you know, you really like zombies, maybe pick up a copy of Plugged In alongside World War Z or Rotten Ruin. Anyways, 28 Days Later. 
greatest movie you can watch while taking a comfy bath. Honestly, a really fun movie despite its endearing and occasionally annoying flaws, a genre landmark, and an unfinished trilogy if I've ever seen one. Come on, Alex Garland and Danny Boyle, get to work on 28 Months Later already. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Cinematic Doctrine. If you've seen 28 Days Later, what did you think of it? Do you think it's one of the best zombie movies ever made, or do you think its flaws are simply too much to put up with? If you're listening on Cinematic Doctrine's website, let me know in the comments below, or shoot me an email to cinematicdoctrine at gmail.com. If you're on Letterboxd, I have a list compiling every movie I've reviewed on Cinematic Doctrine with direct links to those episodes, so be sure to check that out. And consider following me on Letterboxd for quick, bite-sized reviews on every movie I watch. If you'd like to support the show, jump on over to Cinematic Doctrine's Facebook page, and be sure to follow for updates on episodes, movie news, and my usual shenanigans. From there, you can also get connected with the Cinematic Doctrine Facebook group and join the conversation. You can also support the show by leaving a review for Cinematic Doctrine on your respective podcast app. And if that's not enough, head on over to Cinematic Doctrine's Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you can join other patrons and vote on a movie I review once a month. In fact, this was one such movie. So thank you very much to my fellow patrons. And remember, any amount is appreciated with multiple tiers to choose from. All of it will go toward making Cinematic Doctrine the best podcast it can be. A special shout out to those who support at the Art House Theater tier. Thank you so much, Mom and Dad. You're the best. All of this will be available in the show notes. Until next time, stay cool. Want some Cinematic Doctrine swag? You're in luck. We've got 3-inch Cinematic Doctrine logo stickers exclusive for Patreon supporters. Perfect for your travel mug or laptop. Head over to patreon.com forward slash cinematic doctrine, link in the show notes, and choose the independent theater tier. Doing so will net you other perks too. But let's be real, the podcast stickers are the coolest perk. So get yourself some podcast stickers by supporting on Patreon.